The first reading is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 32, beginning at verse 7. It can be found on page 84 of the Old Testament section of the Church Bible. In this reading, we hear of what happened after the Israelites made the golden calf to worship, followed later by Moses receiving one of the clearest declarations of who God is in the Old Testament. The Lord said to Moses, go down at once. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hands the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name, the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The second reading is taken from John chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. It can be found on page 98 of the New Testament section of the Church Bible. In this reading, John describes how Jesus has come to be the new way of God dwelling with his people. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, 
the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law, indeed, was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. If you're able, do stand with me. Thought it might be good at this point in our service to just take a, a moment to remember um, Tim. Tim Neal, for those of you who might not know who are watching online, Tim was known to this congregation for, for many decades and in particular spent a number of years here over the past 10 years before becoming rector of, of St. Mary's. And as many of you will know, sadly he died after complications to do with heart surgery on, on Friday. I thought it might be fitting to remember him now uh, at this moment because maybe it was at this moment in the service when he might have stood in this exact place where God might have spoke to you through him. You may remember that big old Bible he had. He once told me, I think, I'm sure, when I said, why is it so battered? And he said to me it was because of something to do with a, a fight he'd had with a crocodile once. Maybe it was one of those legendary stories that he kind of told, sometimes almost poignant, of the sacrifice that he and his family made in Zimbabwe. Maybe it might have been his, his kind of booming laugh or his voice that kind of might have just jumped you off your seat when you were half falling asleep. I'm sure that never happened, basically. I don't know. Maybe it might just have been, as somebody said to me um, this morning after the 8.30 service, it was the way that he just said something one-on-one. So maybe let's just take a, a moment now to remember him and the rest of the family at this time. Loving Father, we give you thanks for Tim. We thank you for the many blessings many of us received for, from him. We thank you for his love for you and his faith in you. We remember his sense of your justice and the sacrifice he and his family made in that cause. And we leave him now in your care. Comfort, we pray. Carol and Rachel and Sarah, and Shirley, and the wider family in their sadness, pain, and loss. And may Tim rest in peace and rise in glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 
to be seated and shall we pray again. So Lord, may my mouth speak wisdom and the words of my heart bring understanding that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning to awaken our hearts, expand our minds and shape our identity in you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I always thought he'd be there. I never thought she'd leave. Without them, I feel empty. Presence is something so basic to life that we almost take it for granted, don't we? Until it's removed. It's why bereavement or being abandoned can be so difficult, even traumatic for some. At the heart of Christianity from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible is this idea of presence, of how God wants to dwell and be in the midst of his people. For instance, if we were to have read some of the part of Exodus that we didn't read between those two chapters this morning, in chapter 33, we'd read that it was the presence of God that was the difference between Israel and every other nation on the earth. Today, today, just knowing God's presence in our life and experiencing it is transformational, isn't it? It's precious, priceless, powerful. It's why these past four Wednesday nights or so that we've been gathering together up in the chapel have been such an incredible time of God's presence. They've been precious and priceless and powerful. Some of you have, have told me how, how God has almost, you've almost felt a sense of God's presence that you thought he'd almost gone. And so maybe that's an encouragement to, for those who might not have been yet to join us on the first Wednesday in July once more. And encountering God's presence is our theme today. But before we dive into the book of Exodus, let's do some big picture thinking together. So let's do a bit of audience participation. Repeat these words after me. Eden. That was pathetic. It sounds like there was three of you in the room. Eden. Eden. Tabernacle. Tabernacle. Temple. Temple. Jesus. Jesus. The Holy Spirit. Spirit. New Jerusalem. Right, okay, let's do it again. First one. Why those six words? Why did, I, why did I just think of those six words? Maybe you just thought I just made them up off the top of my head, basically. Here's why. Because as I've said, from cover to cover, God wants to dwell with his people. But the way in which he dwells with his people changes as if you like the biblical story goes on. As we go from Genesis through to Revelation, the way that God dwells with his people, the way that his people experience him changes as we go through the biblical narrative. Firstly, remember, at creation. God dwelt at creation with his people in Eden. Moving on, as we'll see this morning, next, God dwelt with his people through the cloud. Through the cloud falling on the Israelites, most latterly in the tabernacle. After that, how did God choose to dwell with his people? 
He dwelt with them in the magnificence of Solomon's temple. Remember that? And then after the exile, what did he do? They rebuilt the temple and his presence came down amidst the ruins. Moving into the New Testament, we see that God brings his presence not through so much a place, but a person, through Jesus. Then after Jesus' ascension, God's presence comes through the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is still the case today, until at the end of time, God will reveal his presence through the new Jerusalem, if you like, a new type of Eden. If you like, here end of the the big picture lesson, but hopefully you might find this helpful as we go through looking at Exodus this morning because encountering God's presence is a big theme in this book of Exodus. And the way that God did that was through the cloud. The cloud fell. Whenever the cloud fell from the sky, they could recognize it. Whenever it fell... The Israelites knew God was with them. It's where we get that that line in the great hymn, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, from. Let the fiery, cloudy pillar lead me all my journey through. The cloud guided the Israelites. The presence of God guided the Israelites out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. When Moses went up Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments and the law, the cloud, the presence of God, fell on the mountain. And then latterly, after Moses was given all these instructions to, to, to build the tent that became the tabernacle, the presence of God, the cloud, fell as Moses went near it or as he went inside. The people of God were people of his presence. Yet today we've reached this crisis moment If you like, this point in the story, which kind of, for them at that moment, they're thinking this is the point of no return. Where the Israelites build and then worship a golden calf. You know, just imagine our lives for a moment. Maybe maybe we've been at that point of no return. Where we just think, we don't know what's going to happen next. We just can't see a future. That is the Israelites as we start our reading this morning. Because the fact that they've made this calf threatens the very existence of their relationship with God. This is how one of the psalmists recalled this part of the Exodus story. At this point in the story, he said, The Israelites made a calf at Sinai and worshipped a cast image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. And as we pick up the reading, that's the scene before us. Moses is still on the mountain. He's still in the cloud. And God alerts Moses to what's going on down below. And we read kind of, don't we, in his anger... God wants to kind of terminate the relationship. The terminate relationship, terminate the relationship between this present bunch of Israelites and God because of their direct contravention of the most important commandments. And as Hazel was reading for us, wasn't it? It was only by Moses pleading, only by Moses interceding on behalf of the Israelites to remind God of his covenant promises to them that that is avoided. 
Now we could press pause here, and some may want to, but for those who were with me last Tuesday at our weekly Bible studies, we, we came across this wonderful line from the book of Hebrews. I'm going to start quoting it a lot. Of these things we cannot speak now of detail. And you'll be so glad when I say that, won't you? Because then we won't be here still having afternoon tea together. So you'll be so glad, won't you? Don't say yes, like somebody did at 8.30. I can hear one or two of you. So we move on. Moses arrives back at the camp, doesn't he? He arrives back at the camp with the Ten Commandments in hand. And he surveys the scene of what's going on. So you know, this is this scene, kind of like where there doesn't look any future, kind of, God has said to Moses, this is pretty bad. You know when someone says to you, this is pretty bad, and then you survey the scene for yourself and you say, this is far worse than what I expected. That's what Moses surveys this morning. And his anger burns hot. And he's been given these 10 commandments, hasn't he, on these tablets of stone, and he just smashes them to the ground. He then looks at the golden calf and he just burns it to absolute ashes. And then the powder from the ashes, he pours in the water and the Israelites who took part in that particular golden calf incident, he makes them drink the water. Total disaster is averted, but not without consequences. But we move on. To the time that we arrive at our second reading, we read of the conclusion to the whole episode. What started out as a crisis and a moment of no return turns into this kind of watershed moment, this transformational moment. It's funny, isn't it, when we perhaps look back on our lives. It's those moments of crisis, those moments where we thought there was no return, there was kind of no future in the situation, that God suddenly turns up and transforms the situation. And it's only when we look back through our lives, often years later, we see that was the moment. And that's what happens here. Because here we have one of the most monumental encounters God has with any human being in the Bible. You see, the significance of what happens here can't be overemphasized. As one commentator wrote, short of the incarnation, if you don't know what the incarnation means, that means short of the coming of Jesus. This is perhaps the high point of divine revelation anywhere that you'll find in the Bible. A description at the very center of who God is. To show the significance of this, When later on in the Old Testament, when people start to ask, who's God? They went back to these words that God gave to Moses because they couldn't beat them. So if you can't beat them, join them. And that's what happened. Whenever anyone asked, who is God? They just kind of repeated these words that we hear in Exodus 34, uttered from God's mouth of who he is. You'll find it in that psalm that Caroline used at the beginning, Psalm 103. You'll find it in Proverbs. You'll find it in the other historical books. You'll find it in the prophets. At least 12, 13 times it became the Old Testament creed. And in this almost like intimate encounter, Moses is hiding behind a split in the rock 
on Mount Sinai, God comes and passes by. Moses wanted to see the glory of God, the presence of God, and what he saw was who God is. Because often it's far more important not to see God, but to know who he is. And we have these seven attributes that God uses, doesn't he, to describe himself. The first two, merciful, gracious. The first two words that come out of God's mouth to describe himself are these two words. I'm merciful and gracious. God doesn't say I'm exacting and precise, or he doesn't say I'm tolerant and overlooking, or he doesn't say I'm frustrated and disappointed. The first reaction of God's heart towards his people is to say, I'm merciful and gracious. Next God says, I'm slow to anger, doesn't he? Describes God's patience. The Hebrew word there literally means long of nostrils. Long of nostrils. In other words, what that means is this. Imagine a raging bull. And imagine a raging bull and they're, they're kind of pouring their feet, aren't they? They're breathing loudly with nostrils flared. That's the picture. That's short-nosed. And the Lord describes himself as long-nosed. He doesn't have his finger, if you like, on the trigger. God might respond to sin with holy wrath, but how often does he keep relenting, reluctant to act, waiting for someone to repent? Let's take the next two together, because they often appear as a couplet together in the Bible. I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God always follows through on his love. A love which is boundless with no termination date. Next God says, I'm forgiving. It means to lift or to carry. It's what God does with our sin, doesn't he? He lifts it off us and he carries it away. And if you notice there, we see how God says he forgives our iniquity. In other words, when we turn aside from him, he forgives our rebellion. He forgives our sin is the third way that it's described there, meaning any kind of moral failure. And so we see this picture of God that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and forgiving. And we might want to press pause there. But there's one final attribute we can't ignore, is there? God's justice. Maybe it's just me. But I find it comforting to know God is a God of justice. Because he's perfect. It's a comfort to me that, that God isn't what we might call or what I might call soft. And one day he will expose all the injustices in this world for what they are. Because what the pages of the Bible tell me is that if God hated idolatry first, the very close second was he hated injustice. And so God says, I'm the Lord, the Lord, the God who saves. I'm merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving and a just God. 
So I wonder which characteristic this morning we need to know in our life, not as information about God, but as transformational for our very relationship with him. That which of those characteristics do we want to encounter in his presence? Because when we encounter God's presence, we'll encounter those characteristics of his goodness. And I wonder which of those characteristics need there to be a greater manifestation of in our lives because the purpose of encountering God's presence is to change us, isn't it? It's so that those characteristics of God are shown in our lives as well. And so from this point in the story, that's how Moses and the Israelites encounter the presence of God. Through the tabernacle. And that practice continued on and off until the days of King Solomon. And Solomon decides to build this magnificent temple for God. And he prays that great prayer. You can read it in 2 Chronicles. And the presence of God falls on the place. And then with the exile and the temple being destroyed, burnt to the ground, that was what was so crushing for the Israelites. Because they thought God's presence had deserted them. And so when they come back from the exile and they're standing in the ruins of the temple, and you can read this in Ezra 3, you can read it in Haggai 2 if you want to go and read it afterwards. They cry. The Israelites who could kind of remember the former temple or they've seen pictures of it or whatever, they cry because they cry at what's left of this great place. And they think, how on earth is God going to restore this great place? And God says to them these words. He says that whatever the glory that was seen, whatever his presence was seen in the former temple, will be nothing to match his presence in the new temple. That was why the temple, and still today, if you ever see a picture of first century Jerusalem, why the temple is so big in comparison if you've ever been to Jerusalem and you've ever seen like the western wall still of that, that temple that was around in Jesus' day and you've ever been on the temple mount and you see how vast it is. That was how important the temple was to Jewish life because that was where the place that heaven and earth met That was why, when Hazel read those words from John's Gospel, that very famous prologue, and what does John do? He uses tabernacle, temple analogy, to describe the coming of Jesus. And he describes Jesus and he says, he's lived among us. If you've got the message translation of that verse, you would find that the word lived or dwelt is the word tabernacled. Because that's what it means. He's bringing all that significance to say that now we encounter the presence of God, not through a place, but through a person. And his name is Jesus. But remember when Moses saw the glory of God. He asked to see the glory of God. And then he said, show me your face. And God said, you can't see my face because to see my face would kill you. So when Moses is peering behind the cleft of the rock, in Exodus 34, and God passes by, and Moses wants to see his glory, and God reveals his goodness. Now what we see in Jesus 
full on Jesus is saying, now you can see God's face. You can see all of those characteristics of God in me because in God there is no unchristlikeness at all. And so the encountering the presence of God becomes not about a place, but a person. And after the ascension of Jesus, it still remains the same with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. That's how we encounter the presence of God. Through asking, inviting the Holy Spirit into our lives. If in the Old Testament, the cloud coming on the tabernacle represented the presence of God. In the New Testament, after Pentecost, it's the coming of the Holy Spirit upon his people that represented the presence of God. So let me leave you with a little acronym to think about how we can encounter the presence of God in our lives. Because the whole thing about encountering the presence of God is it's about an experience, isn't it? It's something that's real. And so, let me just leave you with this acronym for the word time that I just made up, if you like. For maybe it might help you to think about these words as we go through the week and the months. The T stands for time itself. Remember, there are two Greek words for time. Kronos, the time of the day, whatever the time is now, and kairos, which means God's time or the opportune time. And we only encounter the presence of God through spending time with him. And the more chronos time we spend with him, the greater the opportunity for those kairos times, for those God coming in his presence, so much so that you can feel it happening. That's what's been so special about these past four Wednesday nights when we've gathered together, hasn't it? We've just taken the time out of our busy weeks that we all have. And we've just allowed God the opportunity. Boy, has he shown up. The I stands for invite. You see, we encounter the presence of God, don't we, by inviting, asking the Holy Spirit into our lives more and more to just pray that prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. The oldest prayer in the church, because what did Jesus say? He said, everyone. He said, God loves to give the Holy Spirit to everyone who asks. The M stands for move. Because the purpose of encountering God's presence is to move us, isn't it? It's to change us, it's to transform us so much so that those characteristics of God become the characteristics that are lived out in us. When Moses encountered God's presence in the tabernacle, his appearance changed. His face glowed so much that they asked him to wear a veil because they couldn't look at him. And that's what we want to see happen in our lives, isn't it? For the presence of God to change us. Take the time. Invite the Holy Spirit. Expect him to move. And that's what the E stands for, the expectancy. You see, we encounter the Holy Spirit with this sense of expectancy, don't we? This sense of hunger. Taste and see that the Lord is hungry and stay hungry because when it comes to encountering the presence of God, isn't it? When it comes to that, you can never have too much of this good thing. 
press in for that deeper encounter. Want more and embrace all that he wants to give you. Take the time. Invite the Holy Spirit. Let him move in you. Come expectant. Because he will do everything that he's promised. His love for us is eternal as we've seen. And he'll complete the work in us that he's begun. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Why don't we stand together? Maybe if you're watching this online now, whether you're watching it live or whether you'll watch it on playback later, maybe take the time to stand wherever you're watching this. And maybe we might just open our hands to just come and take this moment in our service. Lord, we just take this time now. And we just invite the Holy Spirit. into this place into our lives into our homes and would you move Lord and change us for we come expectantly hungry for you Jesus would say to someone this morning, taste and see, for I am good. Because encountering the presence of God is about God bringing his goodness to your life.